0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1.
1: When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytites, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? By the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Let's pray. Father, as we uh, think about this, this passage and how the original disciples waited in Jerusalem, Lord, knowing that they could do nothing apart from you. And then your spirit came, and they spoke. And they spoke in all the languages of all the people that were there. We just pray, Lord, for something similar this morning, Lord, that you would so fill me, that you would so fill us all, that we would speak, and that we would be able to speak, Lord, the languages of every human heart here Lord, there's so many different needs, there's so many different burdens that people come with, uh, there's no way for any human being to, to speak in such a way that we meet all those needs, but you can and you do, and so we pray, Lord, that your spirit would come, speak to each heart, Lord, that there would be a response of just repentance and faith and joy and receiving of your spirit this morning. Lord, we know that you are the same god who did this you're the same god who sent your son jesus the same god who sent your spirit the same god who has conquered the nations and lord you're the same god who opened our eyes to believe and so we pray lord revive us again revive us again and we look forward to it in jesus name amen so this morning is pentecost sunday and uh, pentecost sunday is one of the five traditional christian holidays so there's five of them and they're all based around jesus they're all based around things jesus did they're all based around the gospel so you've got christmas about the incarnation you've got good friday his death for us you've got easter which is when he rose from the dead for us you've got ascension last week when he was raised up into the heavens his seat at the right hand of god the father almighty from there he will come to judge the living and the dead And then you've got Pentecost, and Pentecost is also, as we're going to see, connected to Christ and very deeply connected to the gospel. This morning, we're looking at Pentecost. We're in Acts 2. We're going to look at three real simple things. We're going to look at what happened, what it means, and how we respond. So very simple. What, What happened? What does it mean? How do we respond? So what happened? Firstly, the disciples were waiting. They were waiting in Jerusalem. Look at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So Pentecost was a Jewish feast. It occurred 50 days after the first Sunday after Passover, if you can follow that. So it lands also that it's 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. So it's 50 days after the first Sunday after Passover, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead on that Sunday, Easter Sunday. He spent 40 days with his people, um, showing himself to be alive and well. And then he ascended, as Gabe so wonderfully preached about last week, as you ate tacos to celebrate last week. But before Jesus actually ascended, if you look at chapter 1, verse 4, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit not many days from then. And so he commands them to wait in Jerusalem. And you know what they did? What did they do? They waited. I would just like, like to take a moment and say, good job, team. You know, so often we're thinking of the disciples, they're told to do something, and then they don't do it. They did it. Why did they do it? They did it because they knew they needed the Spirit. They had this huge mission, they had these ways they needed to communicate Christ to the world, and so they waited. They waited for the Spirit. And I am just wondering this morning, we'd just take a moment and think, has the Lord brought us to a place where we see our weakness, to where we know that we need Him, that we know we need the Spirit to work? You know, are we waiting upon him? So they waited. They did the right thing. It's amazing. And then the Spirit came. Look at verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared and rested on them. So what what we're getting here is like a visual and an audible manifestation of what's happening inside them. It's a visual and audible manifestation of the Spirit coming and filling them. You think fire, why fire? Fire shows God's purity, shows his, his holiness, right? It's the Holy Spirit that's come. The wind, you know, it's a picture of his power, his refreshment, his, his force. But also, it's a picture of, you know, Numa and ruach. Uh, words for spirit also mean wind. And so there's this sound of wind, and there's these tongues of fire, some sort of images coming upon them. And it says in verse 4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it says they spoke in other languages, verse 4 through 8. It says they were all filled with the Spirit and began speaking other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were devout men in Jerusalem, Jews devout from every nation. And at the sound of the multitude, they were bewildered because they were hearing them speak in their own languages, and they were amazed and astonished and said, aren't all these Galileans, and yet we're hearing each in our own native language. So what was going on there is Pentecost is one of the three major pilgrimage feasts. So the Jews would, like, come to Jerusalem for this. So Passover, Pentecost, and then the Feast of Booths were three times when Jews would come from all over the world, and they would come to have these great feasts. And so this this city of Jerusalem was packed with Jews from all over the world. And we see a big list of them in verses 9 through 11. And so the Spirit fills the disciples. They're able to speak in native languages of all these people, languages they didn't previously know. It's kind of this, you know, reversal of the Tower of Babel. Suddenly everybody's hearing the gospel, the mighty deeds of God declared in their own language. So that's what happened but what does it mean? That's what happens in verse 12. The crowd's wondering. In verse six, they're bewildered. In 12, they say, it says they're amazed and perplexed, and they say, what does it mean? And then you have some guy, there's always that guy, says, oh, they're drunk, right? I just love Peter's response to that, by the way. It's such a great answer. It's too early. <laughs> it's such a strange response to the charge that they're drunk. It's too early. So what is it what does Pentecost mean? Why does it matter today? Well Peter breaks out in verse 16, and he starts to to preach and to teach on what Pentecost means. Pentecost means, firstly, that the Holy Spirit has finally come. God had promised for hundreds of years that his spirit would come in a unique way to dwell within his people. And Peter quotes one of those prophets who talked about it in Joel 2. You see it in verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. God promised this this whole new experience with God's Spirit, and finally, at Pentecost, that promise had come. The Spirit had come. And when I say it's a different relationship with God, it's a different type of relationship with the Holy Spirit, we can see that in a few ways. In the Old Testament, you often see that the Spirit comes upon like key figures, kings, kings. Judges, prophets, you see the Spirit comes upon them and empowers them. You don't really hear of like everyday people, you know, the Spirit coming upon them. Uh, Pentecost was a time when the Holy Spirit is beginning to work through all of his people in a profound way. Look at verse 17. God said through the prophet, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, on your sons and your daughters they shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servant and female servant in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. You see all the diversity of how God's spirit is going to be in and through all of his people. You know, you got men and women. You've got young and old. You've got all social classes. Even the servants are going to have the spirit working through them. This is a promise of, of God's spirit coming and infusing every single believer's life. Pentecost means that you have just as much access to the Spirit's life and power as anyone else. Okay? There's no second-class Christians. There's not like the, you know, the missionaries and the, the pastors and the evangelists, and, oh, those guys really have the Spirit, but I don't, or I have some lesser share of the Holy Spirit. God is now dwelling in His people in such a way that everybody has equal access there's some Christian traditions that still have an Old Testament mindset about this, right? That will give you that impression that it's only kind of the leaders of the church or special individuals that have the Holy Spirit within them. What's great is the Reformation just blew all that up. You know, at the Reformation, there was the recovery of the, the biblical teaching of the priesthood of all believers, that all of God's people now function as priests filled with the Holy Spirit. You have as much access to the Holy Spirit's life and power certainly than I do, you know. And in many ways, you will be more gifted in many other areas than I am. You will be more empowered in many other areas than any of your pastors will be. Every believer is indwelt by that same God and receiving the gifts for ministry. And guys, culturally, in our context, the way church is thought of We really need to get away from the idea that there's a few people that are really doing ministry and everybody else is just there to like financially support it and, you know, be there and and kind of just uphold that. Um, The fullness of the Spirit will be seen in our church and, and, by the way, is seen in our church already when all of God's people believe this. When all of God's people believe they walk around knowing that God dwells within them and that they have a gift, a spiritual gift to share. That's when you see the power of the Spirit in a church. It's not when one individual is somehow anointed, but when all God's people realize what they possess—that you possess God Himself within you—and that He is going to work through you through gifts. Kids, kids that are in here with us, God works powerfully by His Spirit through you guys. You know, it isn't that you—you know—got you to wait till you grow up before somehow the Holy Spirit's going to work within you. If you know Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And how many of you guys have received, like, powerful ministry from kids? Powerful ministry. You think about children, you think about the way they pray, you know? And it's like they just pray with just simplicity of, like, oh, God, you can do everything. Like, please save my aunt, you know? Or please heal this condition, you know? You children, the Spirit works powerfully through you through encouragement. I mean, have you guys ever been encouraged by the Spirit through a kid, you know, or rebuked, (laughs) or evangelized? I mean, how often that people have come to Christ through kids saying, like, do you know Jesus? Do you want to meet him? Do you go to church? You know, those simple kind of things. So kids, the Spirit works through you. It says, you know, it's, it's the young and the old, men and women. It's all classes of culture, not only through all people, but There's another change that's occurred from the Old Testament period to the New Testament period. Because in the Old Testament period, in general, the Spirit was spoken of as just coming upon people for empowerment. Coming upon them. Whereas what you see here is the Spirit comes within us. Verse 4 says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit came not just upon them to empower them, but came within them. Jesus said this, you know the Spirit, for he dwells with you, but he will be in you. That's the difference, right? So inside every believer, the spirit coming. So the spirit coming uh, to every believer, inside every believer, and then inside every believer permanently. Another interesting thing you see in the Old Testament is you see the spirit coming and going, right? Saul's a good example of this. You know, the spirit comes upon Saul. He prophesies. Spirit later leaves Saul. David sees that, right? And you remember when he sinned significantly and he is repenting in Psalm 51, what does he say? Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He saw it in Saul. There's a promise here, though, that the Spirit has come with inside his people permanently. Jesus said this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you, what? Forever. Now, one thing to clear up, too, is this passage does not teach that all believers will speak in tongues. It does not teach that all believers, when they receive the Spirit, will speak in tongues. Right? That's an error of Pentecostalism. They teach that, as the Pentecostals teach, that speaking in tongues is the sign you have the Holy Spirit. How do you know they have the Holy Spirit? You speak in tongues. That's not what this passage is teaching. In fact, Paul teaches the opposite, right? Later he says, do all speak in tongues? And the implication of what he's saying is, no, they don't all speak in tongues. And so we shouldn't look at this passage and think, well, this is how you'll know when you get the Holy Spirit. A lot of damage has been done that way. A lot of people have been pressured into trying to you know, to fake it, to feel like maybe I have the Holy Spirit, but you know when you're faking something, so that's damaging to your conscience and not a great thing for you spiritually. And another thing I want to mention here, too, and I know we have some differences in this room, but I don't see any biblical reason to say that all the spiritual gifts have ceased or that any of the spiritual gifts have ceased. Um, Some of you, I know, believe that some spiritual gifts have ceased, tongues, prophecy, healing, things like that. That's fine. I don't want you to feel alienated by me, We have a difference of opinion. I don't see any biblical reason to believe that any of the spiritual gifts have ceased, but this will help on both sides. We must really insist a couple of things, though, which is that the the canon of Scripture is closed, okay? So whether you're the type that believes that all the gifts continue, if you're that type, we have to all agree that That the canon of scripture is closed. There's no more to be added. There's not going to be another prophet that's going to come along maybe in the mid-1800s, get some weird glasses, read in Egyptian, you know, write some more scripture. That's Joseph Smith, by the way. Um, People continue to kind of do that. The canon of scripture is closed. What does that mean? It means that there's not going to be any prophecy that comes along that adds new commands or new doctrine. This is super important. God is not going to reveal from here until his coming any new commands or new doctrine. That's a great safeguard, guys. If somebody comes to you and he says, I have a word from the Lord, and the Lord told me that you need to do this or that, you do not have to do this or that, okay? Because everything that you're commanded to do and believe is in this book. Everything you're commanded to do and believe is in this book. It's called the sufficiency of scripture. That's a theological term for it, and it's super freeing. Because if you don't have the sufficiency of scripture, what you have is, you know, any weird person can come along and tell you that the Lord told you you need to do this or that. Leads to a life of kind of chaos. (laughs) Adding new doctrines, super dangerous. And so the Lord has given us the sufficiency of his scripture that there's not going to be any new commands or doctrine that come along. Everything you must believe and obey is in this book. So ladies, A guy comes to you and he says that the Lord told me that you're supposed to marry me. Okay, not only do you not have to marry that guy, you ought not to marry that guy, okay? He doesn't believe in the sufficiency of his scripture, you know? And you can see how the kind of chaos and the kind of control that could happen when people believe that additional commands are coming or additional doctrine, okay? So I believe in the continuation of the gifts, but that part is super important. And when the gifts like healing and tongues and prophecy, when they happen... They will be obvious, okay? Believing in the continuation of the gifts does not mean you have to believe in everybody's story about a gift, right? You know, because that's a lot of chaos too, right? It doesn't mean you have to suspend disbelief or anything like that. When those gifts occur, they're obvious. Somebody has a gift of prophecy, they will predict the future or they will tell you something about your own soul that there's no way they could have known. They'll be obvious, these will be obvious things. I think that's really important. People worry about like, oh, well, what about the gift of healing? If the gift of healing or when the gift of healing occurs, you will know. These are very objective things. And so I think that's helpful, too, is to realize all the gifts of the Spirit are obvious when they happen. In Acts 2, they didn't have to sit back and go like, do we believe in this? Well, it's actually happening. (laughs) You know, if it actually happens, it actually happens. And it does. The Lord does work in some of these ways still. And when it happens, you'll know it. You'll know it just like you know it when you receive the gift of encouragement. You know it. It's obvious. When you receive the gift of teaching, you know it. When you don't receive it, you know it. Um, <laughs> you know it when you receive the gift of hospitality. You know it when you receive the gift of mercy. When these gifts are functioning and happening, they're obvious. And the reason they're obvious, guys, is because they're all supernatural. There's another thing that's important is every gift that you have is supernatural. Healing and hospitality are equally supernatural why are they supernatural because they're gifts of the spirit because sometimes we think like they're supernatural gifts you know some people have these supernatural gifts and I have like a natural gift I got administration which by the way administration is amazing and if you've ever been in a church without it maybe you are in a church without it (laughs) you know that it's amazing okay all the gifts, guys, are supernatural gifts. This is the way Paul defines a gift of the Spirit. He says this, to each has been given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Isn't that cool? That's your spiritual gift, whatever it is, with mercy, hospitality, whatever your gift is, it's a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Isn't that beautiful? That's in 1 Corinthians 12. Isn't that amazing that you have been given God's Spirit within you and that his spirit within you is producing manifestations for the common good. Isn't that amazing? That creates a different kind of church context when we all believe that. Then the church is a gathering of God's people where everyone has come to practice the gifts that they have for the benefit of one another and the glory of God. So when you come here, think about when you're in your minivan or whatever you drove here, when you come here, you're coming here praying and expecting that god is going to move in you and through the people around you such that there will be a gift exchange the church is a gift exchange and i would just encourage you guys come early stay late you know we try not to make this part of the service uh, you know too long so that you have time and energy to still practice your spiritual gifts but that's what we're doing here we're we're exchanging manifestations of the spirit for the common good And guys, when you see another person and they're clearly gifted, I would just implore you, let them know. Because most of us, even though I said the gifts of the Spirit are always obvious, they're not always obvious to us when we're doing them, okay? So point it out. That's how people know they have a gift. And, you know, it encourages them, which is good, okay? We would like them encouraged to use their gifts, so let them know. And I would say if somebody comes to you or you're talking to them and they point out your gift, don't argue with them. I find that's really common, you know? Oh, man, you're, like, really gifted with encouragement. Well, not at home. I'm like, okay, well, you could work on that. But what I just did is I just pointed out that the Holy Spirit did something through you. It's not really your place to now, like, say the Holy Spirit didn't do something, right? Because this isn't a compliment. This is different than, like, you're great at running, okay? This is, like whoa, when I came to your house, like, this is the gift of hospitality. This was different, you know? Or, hey, when you the other day texted me out of the blue and encouraged me about that thing, I want you to know I was weeping about that exact thing at that exact moment. That was prophetic. Thank you. You know what I mean? Don't fight them. It's funny, isn't it? And we do that. Some people don't like to be complimented. It's not a compliment, okay? It's a recognition of God's work. And so point it out in others, and when they point it out in you, you know, say, wow, that's encouraging. Thank you for letting me know. And then praise God, right? So the church is that kind of gift exchange when when God's people come together that way. So Pentecost means that the Spirit has come in a whole new way. And you know, Jesus talked about this. He talked about the difference between the believer's life before Pentecost and after. This is what he said. He said to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. Okay, this is right before he's going to die. He's saying, okay, this doesn't, I don't see how. And he says this, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he's saying, it's better It's better what we have now with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us when we live in all the fullness of that than if Jesus was walking around with us in person now. You say, well, how can that be? There's several answers I could give to that. I won't give them to you now. Well, one would be is that, you know, he had physical limitations, right? Remember how tired he was? Remember how he was always, like, trying to hide from people and take a nap? Like he was worn out and the crowds would come and things like that. What we have now is a, a way to know and experience God's presence that's different. And it, he says it's better. And I just think, so that's John 16, 7. And I think if there's one thing you can do this week is look at John 16, 7. It is better that I go away. If I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And just pray over that. You know, Seek the Lord and be like, Lord, I want to know this passage as a reality of my life like I want to I want to feel and see this because guys if that's true and Jesus said it so it is then it's safe to say that none of us are experiencing the the presence and the power of the spirit as we could as is available to us which is exciting that's not meant to be like something that would condemn you or something it's exciting right It's exciting that there's more to know of God. There's more to experience of God than we ever have realized. So seek and pray and see what he does. So what does Pentecost mean? It means that the promised spirit has come. Secondly, it means that the last days are here. Take a look at verse 17. It says, In the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter is saying that Pentecost is a fulfillment of this passage. Meaning that Pentecost is the beginning of the last days. Have you thought about that before? You know, people go like, "Hey, do you things are getting kind of crazy? Have you noticed they're kind of crazy? You think we could be in the last days?" Here's the thing: we've been in the last days for like 1990 years. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? After Pentecost, guys, we should not assume there's a whole bunch of time left. Okay, I don't know how much time there is left. There could be a lot. I don't know, but I know that we're in the last days. We shouldn't assume. The major events that God needed to accomplish, He has accomplished. And the way you read this text, he's talking about Pentecost, and then all of a sudden he starts talking about the end of the world. Why? Because it's imminent, right? We're in those last days. We should feel a sense of urgency that 1,990 years ago, we drove past a sign that said, entering the last days, okay? So the Lord comes back at any time, even this afternoon, you can't be like, well, that's not fair. How was I supposed to know? Dude, we passed a sign. 1,990 years ago, okay, that said the last days are here. You've been warned. You know. You know he's coming. So the last days, the last days are a time when the Spirit is indwelling, empowering his people. It's also a time of great upheaval. Um, You can see that in the passage. It's a warning that the end is near. But look at verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Pentecost means that the Spirit's here. The last days are here. And, And Pentecost also shows us that the Spirit testifies about Christ. The Spirit always testifies about Christ. Jesus said this. He said, when the Spirit comes, he will bear witness of me. And this is a really important thing, As we think about the Holy Spirit and we think about what he does in believers' lives and we think about what gifts he might give, what experiences he might give. This passage is really important because it says that the Spirit always testifies to Jesus. He always shines the light on Jesus. This is really helpful. This is helpful to discern what's the Spirit's work and what isn't the Spirit's work. There's this really famous illustration of this, which, you know those landscape lights that go up on trees or maybe on the side of a building? What those landscape lights do is they, they shine forth on whatever they're pointing on, right? A tree or maybe a statue or a building. They say, look at that. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's constantly shining his light on Jesus. The Holy Spirit isn't like a landscape light that, you know, you turned it around and you pointed towards the street. He's not like that. He doesn't go, look at me, look at me, look at me. He says, look at him, look at him, look at him. And that's one way you can know whether a particular gift or a particular work is truly a work of the Holy Spirit, is if that work is saying, Look at him, look at him, look at him. If that whole movement or if that whole experience is all about look at the Spirit, look at the Spirit, look at the Spirit, that's not the way he rolls. That's not what he does. We can see that even in this text. There's this huge outpouring of the Spirit. These people are having these spiritual gifts, they're speaking in tongues, all this stuff's going on, and what happens? a sermon about Jesus breaks out. Look at him, look at him, look at him. The Spirit always testifies about Jesus. The Spirit testified about Jesus through his life. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. The spirit in the life of Jesus was constantly highlighting Jesus, right? Testifying to Jesus. Jesus is walking around. He's making all these big claims. People are like, how can we know this is true? And the spirit goes, here's how you can know. There's a miracle. Here's how you can know. There's, there's a healing. Here's how you can know. He's constantly doing that. Notice, guys, what, he, what Peter says to these people, too. He goes, as you yourselves know. I love that part. They knew. This is something that just happened. And you know what? You know, too. Maybe you're not somebody that follows Jesus right now, but you also know that Jesus was attested to by the Holy Spirit. When you look at the work and the life of Jesus, you know. You know he's exactly who he said he was. There's no way you can deny it. The Spirit testified. Spirit also testified to Jesus through his resurrection. Look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, of whom we're all witnesses, You know, you look at a man who died on a cross three days later, came back from the dead, showed himself to be alive and well. That's the Spirit testifying, this is the one. Guys, there is a huge sign in human history called the resurrection that points to Jesus and says, this way to God. Never since then can we say, you know, there's a lot of gods I don't know. There's a lot of religions, there's a lot of different beliefs. Who can know? The resurrection's how you can know. One of them came back from the dead, right? Right? It's a huge picture. I love, too, how he says, of this we are all witnesses. Remember that Pentecost is 50 days after Easter in the same city. Okay, This isn't like he gave this sermon like a decade later. Jesus dies on a Friday. He's raised on a Sunday. 50 days later, Pentecost, and he's saying, Jesus was raised from the dead. You all know it. We all saw it. This is 50 days, not long. Do you guys remember Easter, like this last Easter? Can you guys remember? Okay, it's not a long time ago, right? Do you remember where you were? You better have been in church, right? Right? I assume you were in church somewhere. But uh, it's not that long ago is the point. If Jesus was or wasn't resurrected in Menifee 50 days ago, that's the time to talk about it, right? He says, we saw it and you all know it. They all knew it. It's a historical fact that's that clear, right? It's a huge sign in human history. So the Spirit testified to Jesus in his life, in his resurrection. And what's really cool in this passage is that the Spirit is now testifying to Christ through his church. Through his church. The Spirit is now testifying through his body, the church. Look at verse 33. Being therefore exalted, Jesus, exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What is he saying? He's saying, you're seeing the Holy Spirit work through the church right now. You're seeing you know, other languages being spoken. And he's saying, this is proof that Jesus is raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. So that Jesus' ascension into heaven is proved by Pentecost. It's, it's like this. It's like, you know, with thunder and lightning. You see the lightning, right? And then seconds later, you hear thunder. The thunder is proof of the lightning. What you have with the ascension and Pentecost is you have Jesus ascends into heaven. All seems quiet for a while. Ten days. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Boom. Pentecost. Boom. The Spirit working. Boom. An explosion within his people. It's the thunder that proves that lightning. You know, if you're in the house and you hear thunder, you go like, oh, I'm going to go outside and look for lightning, right? You know that it's happening. The way we know that Jesus is right now reigning in heaven on his throne is the thunder of Pentecost that's occurring to this day. It's 1,990 years of that thunder rolling, right? So Jesus ascends, it's quiet for a while, 10 days, boom, Pentecost, and that thunder continues to roll for 1,990 years. It's proof that he is reigning. And and we see that proof even in this text. The first 3,000 Jews get saved at Pentecost, right? Which means when they return home, there will immediately be Christians in North Africa, in Turkey, in the Arabian Peninsula, in Iraq, in Iran, and throughout the Mediterranean, including Rome. It's Like immediately, boom, you know, Pentecost. And the gospel's spreading. Those people all go home. The gospel's already in those places. The Spirit's power is evidence- of the ascension and reign of Jesus. It's the thunder after the lightning. As early as the first century, there were churches in Egypt. In the second century, there were churches in Africa, in Sudan, and Tunisia. Ruins have been found of a Christian church in sub-Saharan Africa, which dates to the fourth century. This is the 300s. It's amazing, right? Ethiopia was a Christian nation before Rome was. The early church fathers, Tertullian, Origen, Athanasius, and Augustine were all African. There were churches in India by the third century, Ireland by the fifth century through St. Patrick. There were churches in China by the eighth century, in um, Russia by the ninth century, in Iceland, Iceland by the tenth century. It's crazy, right? And then in the 18th century, Christianity reached exotic lands as far as the Inland Empire. <laughs> Wouldn't that have sounded exotic to them? Like, eventually, the Inland Empire. And they're like, where is that? It's like, the people are crazy. But the gospel's going to take over. It's going to be so good. This is officially the ends of the world, right? Because a lot of times we think about missions, and we think that it starts here, and we're, we're going to, like, go to Africa, and we're going to go here, and we're going to go there. We're the end of the chain, and now it's rippling back, okay? That's what's going on, right? It didn't start here. We're the ends of the earth. Now it's rippling back, which it needs to do, right? which it needs to do. So today, the Spirit continues to thunder the reign of King Jesus by the spread of his church. And I just want to say the word to you guys, and I brought it up before, but as Western Christians, we kind of walk around with our heads down as if, like, the church is dying. It is not dying. It's far from it. Let me tell you how not dying it is. 2.6 billion people claim Christ today. 2.6 billion people claim Christ today. That's the thunder of Jesus' ascension over the whole world. In the last 40 years, China's gone from 1 million Christians to 100 million Christians in 40 years. Isn't that amazing? It's incredible, right? There are more believers gather on Sunday in church in China than in Europe. Within 10 years, there will be more Christians in China than there are in the U.S. Aside from America, Korea sends the most missionaries of any country in, in the world. that amazing it's incredible right and the ripples so the ripples kind of went out from pentecost went over the whole world and then now going back into some of those areas again and i think sometimes we're kind of down on the whole thing we're thinking like oh man we're so beleaguered you know everything's dying out it's not guys and the other thing too is the general decides which fronts we advance on when right and there are certain fronts he's really advancing on now and you know what we could pray we could pray that he'd advance it more here. But even here, guys, we should not be walking around as if we just lost something. It has not been lost. 2.6 billion, right? Just for perspective, you know, you're, especially around our area, you, find, you see a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses with a little stand, right? And they're hanging out there. They're even out there right now. Not like right out there, but <laughs> like, let's get them. Yeah, you know, we're not doing that. That's not the kind of conquest. Um, we've been confused in the past. But I was looking it up, and there's like, there's like 8 million Jehovah's Witnesses in the world. There's 2.6 billion Christians. He's ascended. He's reigning. You can see it. In the last century, guys, Africa went from 10 million Christians to 360 million. Half the continent claims Christ. The gospel's spreading in the Middle East as well, some of the most difficult places. Yesterday, I was watching a video about um, the church in Iran, church in Iran is spreading remarkably. Iran. Do you know what Iran is like? It's incredible, right? Guys, what explains the indestructible life of the church? What explains it is that Jesus has ascended and he sent forth his spirit. This is the thunder of Jesus's reign. It proves his reign like thunder proves lightning. Look at verse 33 again, because that's the passage I've been preaching on. Verse 33, Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he has poured out this, you yourselves, and it's you yourselves, are seeing and hearing. You guys have seen it, and you guys are hearing it, and it's Jesus reigning, sending forth his Spirit. And so verse 36 says: therefore, let all the house of Israel and all you of Inland Empire know, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. So that's what Pentecost means. Now, what, how do we respond? This will be pretty quick. How do we respond? Now that we know, guys, okay, now that we know, and if you're in here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you do know this, okay? You know this as much as I do. You do know now that Jesus has died, he resurrected, and that he reigns, and he sent forth his spirit, and he's doing something very remarkable in the world, something that can only be God, right? You know that. You know that the last days have come, that we passed that sign a long time ago. And you see that God has made Jesus both Messiah and Lord. What should you do? What's the only sane and wise response to this? Because there is only one sane and, and wise response to this. What should we do? Well, the crowd asked that. Look at verse 37. They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? In verse 38, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we should repent. What does repent mean? It means to turn around. It means to turn. That would be a really reasonable thing to do. <laughs> you see what God has done in Christ, and you see what Christ is doing now through his Spirit, and you go like, wait, what is this? You know, what am I seeing here? And then you see Jesus, and you're like, I want him. I want Jesus. I want the Spirit in my life. And so you turn, you know? You turn from your sin. You turn from your distractions. You turn from vain ambitions and pursuits, and you go like, I must have Jesus at all costs. You turn. You turn and trust in him. Some people have noticed here that he says repent, and he doesn't say believe. It's because faith and repentance are actually two sides of the same coin, right? If my sin is here and Jesus is here, To to trust in him is to also turn, right? So I turn from my sin, I take my eyes off of this, and I turn and I move towards Jesus and take hold of him. Repentance and faith are one act, right? And that's why he doesn't say believe here, although he does in verse 21 say call upon the Lord. So if we trust in him, we turn from all other things. And then he says, be baptized. Look at verse 38. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is a picture of salvation. It's a picture of how Christ saves you. So baptism doesn't save you. Christ saves you. And faith is what unites you to Christ. But baptism is this sign of his promise. And it's really beautiful. It's amazing how God does so much with with simple things. So it's water, right? And water, you know, if you you pour it over yourself, it cleans you. Picture the gospel, right? Washes away all our sins. Um, If you take that water and you... You go down into the water and you come out. It's a picture of, you know, your old life, dead to your old life and raised to new life. If you drink that water, it's a picture of the Spirit filling you. Isn't that amazing? Do all that with water. It's impressive. He made water, so, you know, he had an advantage. But it says those who received his word were baptized. We have a baptism coming up on July 9th. And just say, if you've received the word, you should be baptized. It's pretty straightforward, actually. It's real simple. It's like, oh, you know, like, what are you trying to say? I'm not saved. No, I never said that, okay? You're saved by trusting in Jesus, but you are supposed to get baptized. Right? It's just real simple. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a thing that you get to enjoy, and we get to enjoy with you. It's a beautiful sign of God's promise that you can look back on, you know, in those times when you, when you have doubts and when you have struggles. You can look back and you can think, God is faithful to keep his promises. It's a beautiful picture of that. And for you who are parents here, for your kids, if, if they're old enough and they understand the gospel enough to be taking communion, then they're old enough and understand the gospel enough to get baptized. And so we want to baptize them. We don't have to wait till they're 40 or something. Okay? We can do that right away. So let us know. Let us know if you need to be baptized. And I want to end on this. What do we get from Christ? What does he give us? He gives us forgiveness of sins. is that beautiful? He says you'll receive forgiveness of sins. And... um. I was thinking about this, like the amazing gift of forgiveness of sins, and I realize you guys have heard this one before. I realize you've heard that Jesus gives forgiveness of sins, right? You heard that before? And then I say it, and you're like, oh, yeah, that thing. Like, really, let's think about this. All your sins forgiven. It's amazing, right? I think sometimes we've heard it so many times that we don't think much of it. Every sin, that sin that's in your conscience right now that so burdens you, he removes it. He takes it all away. And you might be here this morning, you might be thinking, like, yeah, but you don't understand the weight of my sin. You don't understand what I've done. What was the sin of a lot of these people in this audience? It says in the text they crucified Jesus. Okay? That's big. Could we say that's maybe the biggest sin? You crucified God? And their sins were forgiven, and yours will be forgiven too. He takes them all away. Jesus has died to take away those sins, all of them, guys. If you think that yours is too big for the grace of God, think about verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And yet, Jesus, you remember as he's dying, what he's praised, he says, Father, forgive them. Pentecost has answered prayer. 3,000 people came to Christ. Many of them were the people in that audience, I'm sure. It was the answered prayer. 3,000 of them. He'll forgive your sin too. And then the other thing that the gospel gives us, and we'll end on this, is the gift of the Holy Spirit. I think this is something we leave out when we talk about the gospel a lot, and I know I do too. You tell people, you know, you're a sinner, which you're very well aware of. This is Jesus. He'll pay for your sin. He has paid for it. Trust in him. You'll be forgiven. Be made righteous. One of the things I think we fail to do Is When he gave the gospel here, he said, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not sure why we leave that out a lot. Maybe we think it sounds weird. I don't know. The whole thing sounds weird, people. So leave it in. Because what I suspect is that a lot of people, that would be amazing good news, right? That they're not just going to have their sins forgiven, but they're going to get a new life. You have God within them. Because a lot of people are like, hey, that's fine for you. You know, you can follow Jesus, but you don't know how messed up I am. You don't know how big of a train wreck I am. You don't know how big of a disaster I am. You don't know how dead I am inside. Paul said this, if the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What's he saying? All you have to bring is your dead life. Isn't that amazing? Like you feel dead, you feel like you, there's no hope for you, you feel like it's over. He's like, bring me the carcass and I will make it alive. is that amazing? So amazing. Let's pray. Father, we are, uh, we're in awe of you. Glorious God. It's your high and exalted and holy and all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing, everywhere should the great judge of the world the only one who has the right to judge the whole world the one who will make the whole world right by judging the world and yet and yet you come you send your son Jesus you came you came and you died for our sins you hung on the cross for us You prayed that prayer, Father, forgive them. Lord, we thank you that that prayer is answered every single day in this world. That his death is effective for people every single day in this world. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming and being the thunder roll for the last 1,990 years. Causing people to flock to come to Jesus. And we pray for ourselves, Lord. We pray for everybody in this room as we worship, as we take the Lord's Supper, Lord. We pray that every single person in this room would receive this good news. I thank you, Lord, for all the people in this room you have saved, whether it was 50 years ago or it was five days ago. Your amazing work of redemption. Only you can make people alive again. And you do. You do it every day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless
1: your week and guide your steps.